Chapter Two, Part One, of Stolen Souls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winterout. Stolen Souls by William LeCue. Chapter Two: The Golden Hand, Part One. Ramblings, erratic and obsession dogged, had taken me to Bagnères de Lucon over the snow-capped Pyrenees, by the port de Vanesque to Esca, thence to quaint old Zaragoza and Valencia, and in returning from Madrid I found myself idling away a few days at San Sebastian, that gay and charming watering-place which someone has named the Brighton of Spain. The month was July, the town was filled with madriliftos, attracted by the excellent bathing, and glad to escape the stifling heat and dust of the Castellana or the Calle de Acala, while the shell-like concha, or bay, was given up to the campamento of bathing tents. From my seat in the porch of the Fonda de Azcura, I gazed upon the beautiful bay of Zuriola, with its twinkling lights crowded with a thousand fantastic shadows. I heard the creak of the rowlocks and the plashing of oars and the laughter of girls, and in the deep gloom not far away, the faint music of violins and mandolins trembled in the air. So still was the night that the regular throbbing of paddle-wheels from a steamboat not yet visible formed a rumbling undertone to all the other sounds, and the summer moon bathed all things in its mystic light, throwing far out over the water into the Bay of Biscay a bright, shining pathway. Across this path boats glided from time to time, on the asphalt walk at the edge of the beach, fair flirtatious little dames in graceful mantillas passed to and fro, and as I lit a cigarette, I dreamed and dwelt upon the future. Presently a neat-ankled waiting-maid came out and handed me a telegram, which she said had arrived during dinner, and I rose, sauntered over to where the great light was placed above the door, and opened the dispatch. It gave me satisfaction, for it was an order from the journal I represented to remain there, and transmit by telegraph daily what fresh intelligence I could gather with regard to the political crisis through which Spain was at that moment passing, by reason of the Queen Regent, the young king, and the court having left Madrid for San Sebastian a week earlier, the locale of the crisis had been removed from the capital, and among those staying at my hotel were Señor Canovas del Castillo, the conservative leader, Señor Novaro Roverte, Minister of Finance, and Signor Villaverdi, ex-minister of the interior, besides several members of the Cortes. In these circumstances, the prospect of a week or two at one of the most charming of European health resorts was by no means distasteful, especially as I saw that I should experience but little difficulty in obtaining such information regarding the situation as I required. A rigorous censorship had been established by the government over all telegraphic messages sent out of the country, Therefore, it would be necessary for me to cross the frontier into France each day and send off my dispatch from Bayonne. Thrusting the telegram into my pocket, I lit a fresh cigarette and lounged away down the Avenida de la Libertad to the Calle de Poza, the fine tree-lined promenade behind the casino where the life and gaiety of the town had assembled. Under the bright electric rays, crowds of well-dressed promenaders were strolling slowly up and down, listening to the strains of a military band, 
and ever and anon, when the music paused, the chatter and laughter mingled in a din of merriment with the jingle of the many gaily lit cafés in the vicinity. Carried to and fro the length of the asphalt by the ebb and flow of promenaders, I spent a pleasant hour watching the life around me, and enjoying the cool air after the heat and burden of the glaring day. San Sebastian is noted for the beauty of its female population, and indeed, I am fain to admit that I saw more beautiful women during that brief hour than it had ever been my lot to meet at Vichy, Etretat, Royat, Arsacon, Biritz, Nice, or any of the other favored spots where dame society allows her world-weary children to disport themselves at certain seasons. Spanish women know how to dress, but the women of San Sebastian rely not upon the manipulation of the fan, nor the arrangement of the mantilla to attract. They are naturally graceful in gait and fair of face. Two figures in that crowd riveted my attention, but alas, only for a moment. I gazed upon them, but next instant they were gone, swallowed in that ever-shifting vortex of laughter-loving pleasure-seekers. Both were attired in black, one an elderly lady with white hair, upon whose refined face care had left deep furrows, the other a tall, graceful girl, scarcely more than nineteen, evidently from the South, whose calm, serious face was even more strikingly handsome than those of the many beauties about her. The chevelure had evidently been arranged by a maid of the first order. The mantilla she wore, graceful in every fold, gave to her clear olive complexion an essentially soft and feminine look. Her dark eyes were large and languishing, and there was that peculiar gray tint upon the skin that when natural in women of the South is so unusual and so artistic. For a second, unnoticed by her, I gazed in admiration, but she passed on and was lost. Turning a few moments afterwards, I sped back in the hope of overtaking her and again feasting my eyes upon her incomparable beauty, but though I searched the crowd for fully half an hour, I was compelled to relinquish my self-imposed task, turning at last into the casino, where, over cigarettes and coffee, I sat chatting to a loquacious old captain of artillery upon the political crisis until the musical carillon of San Vincent chimed the midnight hour. Then, wishing my companion buenas noches, I rose and strolled back to my hotel, haunted by the sad, sweet face that had passed and vanished like a shadow. But I had work before me. The relations between England and Spain were strained, and diplomatic negotiations regarding some incidents in Morocco and in Cuba had been rendered more difficult on account of the unexpected overthrow of the ministry. The British government was more interested in the affairs of Spain than it had been for many years, so the British public were eager for the latest intelligence. Therefore, when I retired to my room, I was compelled to sit far into the night, writing by the light of a guttering candle all I knew and recording every rumor about the complex questions. Those who have wandered over the yellow sands of San Sebastian know well how picturesque is the view across the bay of Zuriola. It was upon this scene I gazed on opening my windows on the following morning. Beyond the broad plaza, lined on three sides by handsome houses, the sunlit waters of the Bay of Biscay rolled in upon the shore, wave after wave of transparent emerald breaking in long lines of snowy foam. White villas gleamed from among the foliage on the hillsides, and high brown cliffs rose from right and left, against which the rollers, roaring and surging, dashed and went up in columns of spray. Swallowing my coffee, I went out, not, however, 
before I had made a gratifying discovery, namely, that the room next mine, communicating by a locked door, was the private sitting-room of Signor Canovas del Castillo, the statesman upon whose political actions the eyes of Europe were at that moment centered. Success in journalism depends a good deal upon luck, and to accidental incidents I attribute any good fortune I have enjoyed in obtaining exclusive and reliable information in various holes and corners of the continent, where I have had to compete with the resident correspondents of Reuters, the Havas, and the Central News Agencies. I had walked across the Plaza de la Constitución, wondering how I could best turn this fortuitous circumstance to account, when suddenly I found myself before the gray façade of Santa Maria, and almost involuntarily I entered. The air was heavy with incense, and the church was in semi-darkness, a chiarusco that was exceedingly striking and effective. There was, however, little of interest beyond the heavily gilded and somewhat tawdry altars, which are the feature in most Spanish churches, and I was just about to leave when the silence was broken by loud sobbing close to me. I had believed myself alone in the place, but on gazing round in surprise, I saw within a few yards of me, half hidden by one of the great stone columns, a female figure kneeling before one of the altars, with her face buried in her hands, sobbing as though her heart would break. I was turning away, leaving the lonely worshipper to her grief, when the dress, the softness of outline, and the flawless complexion seemed strangely familiar. Next instant I recognized her as the girl I had passed in the crowd, and whose beauty had so impressed me. Upon the stone she was kneeling in abject despair. In her dark hair she had placed a crimson rose, and her delicate white hands, upon which some bright gems glistened, were wet with bitter tears. My feet fell noiselessly upon the matting, and she was unaware of my presence until, placing my hand lightly upon her shoulder, I bent, exclaiming in French, Mademoiselle is unhappy. Is there no assistance I can render? She started, raising her pale, pensive face to mine in surprise. Then in sorrow she shook her head. Monsieur is very kind, she answered, in a voice that betrayed a poignant grief. Words of sympathy may lighten one's burden of sorrow, but nothing can heal a broken heart. It mainly depends on how the fracture was caused, I answered, smiling, and grasping her tiny hand, assisted her to rise. She brushed the dust from her dress, dashed away her tears, and turning to me said, I have heard that gaiety is efficacious, sometimes. Until I know the cause, I cannot prescribe for the effect, I replied, as I held open the door, and she passed out into the sunlight. Ah, monsieur, she sighed bitterly, her beautiful eyes still full of tears. Woe is my heritage! The brightness of each dawn jars upon me, showing me how gloomy life is, and how utterly hopeless and lonely is the sea of despair upon which I am drifting. I welcome each night with joy, because, because it brings me one day nearer, nearer to death. You are young and fair. You have joy and life around you. Surely you are joking. No, monsieur. Ah, you do not know, she sighed. If you were aware of my secret, you would, I assure you, not be surprised that, even though surrounded by friends, I desire to die. But it is so extraordinary, I said, walking beside her and chatting as if we were old acquaintances. Have you never tried to unburden yourself by confiding your secret to some friend? Dieu, 
No, I, I dare not. Dare not, I echoed. Of what are you afraid? Afraid? She repeated in a strained voice, speaking like one in a dream, with her eyes fixed straight before her. Yes, I, I am a wretched, miserable coward, because I fear the punishment. Is your crime of such a flagitatious character, then? My crime? she cried, turning suddenly upon me with flashing eyes. What, what do you know of my crime? What do you insinuate? Nothing, mademoiselle, I answered, as politely as I could, though amazed at her sudden change of manner. Your own strange words must be my excuse for inquisitiveness. Then let us change the subject. To you, my private affairs can be of no concern whatever. I was not prepared for this stinging rebuff. We passed the front of the casino, strolling through the shady gardens facing the concha, and when we had rested upon a convenient seat, pleasantly sheltered from the sun, she grew communicative again. While I had been telling her of my journey over the Pyrenees to Madrid, her grief had been succeeded by gaiety, and when I related some amusing contretemps that had befallen me at a wayside posada at the Sierra de Guara, she laughed lightly. At length, at my request, she drew out a silver case, and in exchange for my card, gave me one bearing the name Dorotieta de Avendano. Then, with an ingenuousness that enhanced her personal charms, she told me of herself, that she was the only daughter of the Count Miguel de Avendano, who had represented Castileo in the Senate, but who had died a year ago. The widowed countess, who had been her companion on the previous night, had let their mansion in the Calle Ancha de San Bernardo at Madrid to a wealthy foreigner, and since that time her mother and herself had been traveling, spending the winter at Cannes, the spring at Sevilla, and coming to San Sebastian for a few weeks previous to going north to Paris. She pointed out their villa from where we sat, a great white house with a terrace in front, standing out against a background of foliage on the side of the hill overlooking the bay. The Count, her father, had, I knew, been one of the most celebrated of Spanish statesmen. Referring to many well-known personages at court as her friends, her observations regarding their little idiosyncrasies were full of dry humor. Where the versatility of narrative, she told me many little anecdotes of the Queen Regent and the infant monarch, the knowledge of which betrayed an intimacy with the domestic arrangements of the palace, and for fully an hour gossiped on pleasantly and amid this life of gaiety and happiness I find you kneeling in yonder church abandoned to melancholy, I observed at length half reproachfully. The light died out of her face. True, she sighed. Sometimes for an hour or so I manage to forget, but sooner or later the sorrow that overshadows my life recurs to me in all its hideous reality, and when I am alone it overwhelms me. To the world I am compelled to appear chic, happy, and thoughtless. Few indeed who know me are aware that my feigned laughter is but a bitter wail of lamentation, that beneath my smile lies a broken heart. And your lover? Was he faithless? What of him? What of him? she gasped hoarsely, rising from the seat with her hands clenched. I, I know nothing of him, she added, with a strange look in her eyes. She laughed a hollow laugh, and as she drew on her long suede gloves, the bell of San Vincente announced the noon. I have been out too long already, she added, hurriedly rising. We must part. May I not accompany you towards your home, I asked. No, monsieur, she answered firmly, holding out her hand. 
"'And when shall we resume our chat?' I asked. She hesitated, gazing away to the misty cliffs across the bay. I half feared she would refuse to meet me again. "'If you are not bored by my wretchedness and bad temper,' she said at last with a sad smile, "'I will be here tomorrow morning at eleven. "'I shall not fail to keep the appointment,' I said, delighted. "'Meanwhile, try and forget your secret. "'Try and be equally happy with those around you, "'and remember that at least you have one sympathizer, "'even though he is almost a stranger.' Tears welled in her beautiful eyes as I clasped her hand. Thank you, she said in a low voice, trembling with emotion. I, I appreciate your sympathy. Au revoir, monsieur, sans adieu. For an instant our eyes met. Then, turning toward the concha, she walked away and was, a few seconds later, hidden by a bend in the path. I strolled back to the escura, utterly mystified. Women's ways are as many and as devious as Lux lines on one's hand. But the Signorita Dorotieta was an enigma. I was not one of those minor lovers whose petty passions could be caged for a triolet, for her marvelous beauty and exquisite grace now held me in fascination. No solution of the political crisis presented itself. In those agitated and troublous times under which Spain was laboring, I was compelled to make a daily journey to Bayonne, a distance of thirty-four miles, in order to dispatch my telegram to London. The Carlists were active, the various political parties were holding conferences incessantly. In military circles, dissatisfaction was being openly expressed, and there were sinister rumors of a projected coup d'etat. With Signor Canovas del Castillo, Signor Romero y Robledo, and Signor Navarro de Verte, I had had short interviews the substance of which had been transmitted to London, and spending the brilliant Sunday mornings in strolling with my enchanting senorita, the afternoons in writing, and the evenings in traveling to and fro across the frontier, the days glided by, and I took no count of them. In the course of these charming morning rambles, we had visited Los Paseas and Monte Igueldo. We had strolled along the Paseo Tatagorita, and ascended Monte Orgullo, to enjoy the view of the Pyrenees, and each hour I spent with her increased my admiration. She had discarded the mantilla, and was always dressed in gowns and hats that were unmistakably from the Rue de la Paix. Patrician refinement was stamped upon every line of her handsome countenance, and her conversation was always bright, witty, and delightful. One day, while we were walking along the Paseo de Atagorita, beside the sea, outside the town I explained to her how, as a newspaper correspondent, I was exceedingly anxious to obtain reliable information regarding the situation, and the earliest intimation as to the formation of the new cabinet. Then, as she expressed herself interested in journalism, I related in reply to her questions some of my adventures in pursuit of news. She was, I found, quite an enthusiast in politics, for she gave a critical opinion upon the probable policy of the various parties, declaring that the day of revolutions by pronunciamiento had not gone by, adding emphatic arguments that I would have done credit to any member of the chamber. I told her of the details I had already sent to London, describing the efforts of Señor Canovas de Castillo to form a new cabinet, but after hearing all I had ascertained regarding a probable solution of the crisis, she shook her head and laughing said, I believe your information has somewhat misled you. Although the deadlock is even more serious than you anticipate, 
yet matters may be temporarily adjusted at any moment. And when they are, I shall, alas, be compelled to bid you adieu, I said sorrowfully. The memory of these few bright happy days will dwell always within me. In silence she gazed for a few moments away upon the broad expanse of green sunlit sea. Then she exclaimed, And you will return to London and, and forget me. No, never, Dorotietta, I said passionately. I shall always look upon these as the happiest hours of my life. Her breast rose and fell. As we walked together, I held her small, well-gloved hand in mine, breathing into her ear the tender passion that had overwhelmed me. I scarcely know what words I uttered, but she heard me patiently in pensive silence until I had concluded. Then withdrawing her hand slowly but firmly, she replied in a voice that betrayed emotion. No, no. Our relationship can never be closer than that of friends. Our lives lie so very, very far apart. Oh, I know, I cried in disappointment, stopping and gazing straight into her great liquid eyes. If I were wealthy, I might dare to ask for your hand. As it is, Dorotieta, as it is, may I not entertain hope? Slowly and sadly she shook her head. But I love you. That I do not doubt, she said huskily, sighing heavily. You do not reciprocate my affection sufficiently, I hazarded. I did not say so, she replied quickly, raising her dark lashes for an instant. Perhaps I may even love you with as fierce a passion as you yourself have betrayed, yet, though that may be so, we can never marry, never. May I not know the reason, I asked? No, she answered, with her eyes fixed seaward. Soon I shall die. Then perhaps you will ascertain the truth. Until then, let us be friends, not lovers. I was sorely puzzled, for the mystery was so tantalizing. Times without number, I sought by artfully concealed questions to penetrate it. But she frustrated every effort, and when we parted outside the casino at noon, my bewitching senorita grasped my hand in farewell, saying, We are true friends. Let us trust each other. We do, I answered, bending with reverence over the hand I held. Our friendship will, I hope, last always, always. Her heart seemed too full for further words, for her luminous eyes were filled with tears as she disengaged her hand and turned slowly away with uneven steps. Again and again we met, but on each occasion I spoke of love, she requested me kindly but firmly to refrain from discussing the subject. It is enough, she said one morning, while we were strolling through the Calle Santa Catalina, enough that, in idling away a few hours each morning, we do not bore each other. Let us live for the present, enjoying to the full the few pleasant rambles that remain to us. Then when we have parted, only pleasant memories will remain. Sometimes I met her driving in the afternoon, or walking along the concha in the evening with the countess. Then she would smile a graceful recognition, but being only a chance acquaintance I was not introduced, neither was I invited to the Via Guipuzcoa. End of chapter 2, part 1